Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service this morning. Thanks, Charlie, for doing the <clears throat> opening prelude. It sounded awesome. Let's stand and worship God together. The song that we chose is one that I felt was like a good sum up of our passage that we're going to go into. One of, I think one of the coolest verses, not probably not one that you're concentrating on, but it says um, when they were in Antioch, and then the next part of that phrase is, is where they first started becoming called Christians, which I think is really cool, like 2,000 years ago. Um, and then the songs that we chose are ones that kind of describe what Christians should be. Thank you. 
church this morning. Beautiful, beautiful day outside. Uh, a couple of us were chatting this morning, Cam and I in particular, were just remarking how it'd be neat to have an outdoor service on a day like today. So maybe that's something we can keep in mind for later down the road this summer. But anyways, beautiful day the Lord has blessed us with. Uh, I would ask you if you, uh, if you would like to, to join me in reading the uh, call to worship this morning found in your bulletin. It's, Psalm 30, it's from Psalm 36, so we can just read together. How precious is thy loving kindness, O God, for with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we see light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for everyone who, uh, who came out this morning to, uh, to hear your word and to, uh, and to receive a message that has been laid on Glenn's heart for us here this morning. So we just thank you for everyone here. Pray that we will uh, uh, watch over those who are not with us today, too busy doing uh, whatever they're doing. So just be with them, Lord, and help them to remember that today is your day. And we just thank you again for, uh, for this day. And in your name we pray. Amen. 
scripture reading today is from Acts 11, 19 to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. this morning. Thank you music team for leading us in music and thank you Charlie for that prelude this morning. That was very well done. Very beautiful. Thank you for doing that. Let's, uh, let's take the time to bow in prayer and uh, focus our thoughts on what God has to say to us this morning. Lord God, we, we just ask that you would uh, take hold of our thoughts by the power of the Holy Spirit within us and that uh, as we go through this particular passage, that uh, Holy Spirit, you would just open our minds to what you are saying. Help us to be receptive to that and to have that understanding that comes only from you. Help me, Lord, to be so in tune with you and controlled by you that it would be actually you speaking this morning. And that what you want to come out to each one of us would come out as only you can do that we all come here Lord for different things going on in our minds and different uh, things happening yesterday or last week that we're maybe still fighting through or things coming up this coming week that we're not sure how that's going to play out but Lord help us to forget about all that for a bit and just focus on you and what you're saying to us and that you would just take your word and apply it to whoever, wherever we may be in our own personal lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we uh, bought our acreage many long years ago, uh, we decided to move our 
mobile home onto that acreage. We had bought the mobile home, home a couple years previous and had bought a lot of town here, just a couple doors, I guess that way. <laughs> a, couple, a couple lots down that way and we lived there for a couple years. We bought our acreage and decided to move our mobile home onto that acreage. Uh, but we wanted to have an addition on a basement. An addition onto that mobile home, but the addition sitting on a basement. And so we realized that we needed to do the basement of that addition before we can move the mobile home out there and then set the mobile home kind of right beside the basement, right up against the basement, and then we could build the addition on top of that up against the mobile home. So that first summer that we had bought that acreage uh, was spent building that basement. Some of you older ones here can remember that. <laughs> We came across a video, Gloria was cleaning, doing some cleaning and looking through stuff that we hadn't looked at forever and had some home videos we didn't even know what was on them. So we looked at them and managed to find something that would play an old VHS. And here we had a video of us moving the trailer from town out to that acreage. So that was kind of <laughs> reliving some memories. Lauren, you were in pretty good shape back then. You were out there giving orders. I remember that, seeing that on the video. <laughs> so, anyway, we, we spent that first summer building that acreage, or building the basement for that, uh, for that addition. Now, I don't know a lot about construction. I know a little bit more now than I did back then. Back then, I didn't know a whole lot. So I leaned a lot on a certain man named Gary Lowen. Some of you may remember him, and if you don't, he is Chris Lowen's father, and a very, very wise man, especially when it comes to construction. He was helping me think through things through about this basement and this build, and telling me I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, and whatever. And it was getting, as the more he talked about the things I needed to do, the more expensive it was getting in my mind, and the more it was going to cost. And so I started asking him, I said, can't we just do this and this instead? kind of cut some corners here, cut some costs, and, and he tried to explain to me that, yeah, we could, but it wouldn't be as good, and it would have weak spots and have potential problems. And after discussing it for a time with him, I think he started getting pretty frustrated with me, and uh, he said, after a while he made this comment, he said, a good foundation is important. That's biblical. <laughs> And he managed to convince me over to his way of thinking. Because <laughs> he was right. A good foundation is important. And yes, the Bible does speak a lot about the importance of a good foundation. And that's something not only important in construction, it's important in so many areas of life. In business, in relationships, in education, in marriage... We could go on and on. A good foundation is important. It's important in our Christian lives as well. To grow, to become strong Christians who walk close to God and who exhibit consistent godliness, for that to happen, you need to be grounded on a good, solid foundation. To get that grounding in our Christian lives, we need teaching. And that's what we see in the passage we come to today in our series through the book of Acts. That passage Curtis just read, 11, 1930. 
Last week, you remember, we looked at the first half of chapter 11. We saw there how the apostles and the Jewish Christians start to come around in their way of thinking to realize that Jesus meant the gospel for the Gentiles as well. And that he would certainly accept any Gentile on the basis of their faith in Jesus, just like he did the Jews. Faith in Jesus, that and that alone. The apostles and the Jewish Christians were almost forced to that conclusion, considering the obvious work of God in the lives of Cornelius and his household. Um, that was back in chapter 10, and chapter 11 kind of is the aftermath of that. But looking back at that story of Cornelius and his household, they believed that Jesus was the Savior, and through him alone they could be cleansed and have forgiveness from their sins. They repented, they placed their faith in Jesus, and then they were so very obviously, they so very obviously received the gift of the Holy Spirit upon doing that. And the sign of that was that they spoke in tongues, Acts, Acts 10 verse 46. They spoke in tongues just like the Jewish Christians did on the day of Pentecost. So it was obvious that Jesus was accepting these Gentile believers upon their faith and repentance alone. And so the apostles and the Jewish Christians were forced to that conclusion as well. And we saw some good examples from last week, in the first half of chapter 11, uh, some good examples about recognizing the work of God when we see it, and then getting in tune with it. The last half of chapter 11, where we're looking today, it records the further spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now remember, after Stephen was stoned to death back in chapter 7, a great persecution broke out against the Christians in Jerusalem, and many of them fled Jerusalem and scattered, kind of scattered out. But they took the message of the gospel with them as they scattered, and told it wherever they were scattered to. And the gospel took hold in a few different places as they spread out. Verses 19 mentions a few places that the gospel was spread to. But this chapter focuses mainly on the city of Antioch and the great number of people who believed in Jesus there in the city of Antioch. Antioch was destined, and we'll see this as we go through Acts, it was destined to become the number one Christian city in the first century. Uh, this record, this passage here in 11 kind of tells us how that got started. So, we have a lot of people and Gentile people becoming Christians in Antioch. A whole whack of new Christians. Many of them Gentiles who had no grounding in the Old Testament scriptures like the Jews would have had. And so they needed some grounding. And as you see from this passage, and as we will see, it was recognized that they needed that grounding. And this portion records what was done to give them that grounding. So let's first go through the story of this, these verses, just so we all understand exactly what was going on here. And then we'll make the application of, those, uh, of what happened here to our lives today. The writer, who is, of course, Luke, he now, as you start there in 11 verse 19, he goes back, as you see there, to chapter 8, and picks up the story of those believers who scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that arose after the stoning of Stephen. And it says they were scattered. And it seems a number of them headed north from Jerusalem along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Phoenicia. 
That's, that's an area, that's not a particular city, it's an area along that coast uh, north of Palestine. Cyprus, Cyprus was a, quite a substantial island out in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast a ways. Uh, pretty big island if you look at the maps the back of your Bible, if you have maps there you can see it. It was pretty, pretty well inhabited island, there were a couple major cities there on Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. And then also talks about Antioch. Antioch, as I said, was a major city. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and was the capital city of the Roman province of Syria at this time. It was at this time the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Estimated population, as Luke wrote this, of about 500,000. So these are the places that the Christians spread to as they scattered out of Jerusalem. And verse 19 tells us that they spread the gospel wherever they were on their way north. But it says they would speak to just Jews. Now almost every town and city at that time had a Jewish presence in it and a synagogue in it. And that is where these Christians that were scattering out of Jerusalem, that's where they would go. And they would share the gospel, tell them about Jesus, his death and resurrection, that he's the Messiah and all that. They'd preach that in the Jewish synagogues. But something different happened in Antioch, you see, as we go along here. Something different happened in Antioch. And from now on, Luke focuses his attention completely on what happened in that big city of Antioch because it's significant. Some of the Christians that came to Antioch were originally from Cyprus and Cyrene, it says. We've already looked at where Cyprus is. Cyrene was a long ways away. It was way south. <laughs> it was on the north coast of Africa, way south and east of Antioch. But these people, they're natives of Cyprus and some were natives of Cyrene. They likely had been in Jerusalem for the feast when the day of Pentecost happened. And likely became Christians because of that or in the aftermath of that. And they had stayed in Jerusalem for a while. We saw that at the beginning chapters of Acts. And then when the persecution hit, they scattered. And they headed north and arrived in Antioch. So these people from Cyprus and Cyrene, they arrived in Antioch, they started sharing the gospel of Jesus and the gospel, yeah, the gospel of Jesus to the Greeks as well, to Gentile people. And it says in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them as they did so, and a large number of these Gentile people turned to the Lord. So this was another major outworking of the Spirit of God. The most major outworking of the Spirit of God among the Gentiles yet. We saw the first, first the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. I guess he could have been maybe a Gentile, probably was a Jew, Jewish, but <laughs> could be considered Gentile perhaps. And then we saw the conversion of Cornelius and his household. They were Gentiles. We aren't told how many were there. But it talks about his household, and he invited his friends and relatives. Oh, you know, we could make an educated guest, 20, 30-ish kind of people in the household of Cornelius. But this is much more of a grand scale of Gentile conversions. This was definitely God at work. Lots and lots of Gentile people turning to the Lord. And the news of this great revival reached the people of the church at Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at this point was the mother church, if you like. So the news of this revival reached the church of Jerusalem. That's where uh, most of the apostles were still, still were there. 
So similar to what happened when they heard the, that Philip was preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. Samaritans, of course, remember, are kind of half-Jews. They're half-breeds. <laughs> so similar to what happened in chapter 8 when the gospel was preached to Samaria, they sent Peter and John out to check it out. Now, the, gent- uh, the, the, the church of Jerusalem, upon hearing the great turning to Jesus among the Gentiles, the church of Jerusalem then sent out Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. I find it interesting that they chose Barnabas. We've run into Barnabas before. First in Acts chapter 4, where we see him selling attractive land that he owned and donating the money to the apostles for the purpose of helping out the poor and needy among the new believers in Jerusalem shortly after the day of Pentecost. And that's when we were first introduced to him in chapter 4. That We see there that, that Barnabas was actually a nickname. His real name was Joseph. But Barnabas means son of encouragement. They nicknamed him that because that described him so well. He was just a very encouraging person. Encouraged everyone to rub shoulders with. So they named him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Then we saw him again in chapter 9, verse, 30, verse 27. Where he took this new convert named Saul under his wing... Saul, remember him, that overzealous Pharisee bent on imprisoning and killing Christians, but then met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and was amazingly converted to believing in Jesus as the Messiah and then repenting of his sin and placing his faith in Jesus. He became a Christian. But everyone was fearful for him of him because he was so zealous and persecuting Christians. And so a lot of Christians were skeptical about his conversion. No one wanted to associate with him. But then Barnabas, the encourager that he was, he took Saul under his wing and introduced him to the apostles and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and convinced them that Saul's conversion was real and that he was one of them and that he was eager and able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now here in chapter 11, we see that the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas off to Antioch to check out what was going on there. They were hearing stuff about a great revival in Antioch. Was what they were hearing real? Was it accurate information that they were getting? Is it truly a work of God? So they sent Barnabas to, to see what was going on. Uh, verse four, uh, 36 tells us that Barnabas, uh, chapter 4, verse 36, pardon me, way back in chapter 4, verse 36, it tells us that Barnabas was originally from the island of Cyprus himself. So that's interesting, uh, seeing that the people bring the gospel to the Gentiles at Antioch were from Cyprus and Cyrene. What catches my attention here is verse 24, what it says there in verse 24. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was just an outstanding man of God. There's never anything negative said about Barnabas in the pages of Scripture. He was a man of faith. He was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. And thus, because of his filling of the Holy Spirit, he would have been exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in his life. He would have been a very discerning person because he was full of the Spirit. He was just a good man in every sense of the word. And I know I would, my own personal devotion the past week, I've been looking reading through that passage, and I, that's what I wrote in my little journal. I said, would that I would have that kind of reputation that Barnabas has. What a, 
just a tremendous man of God. And obviously the apostles in Jerusalem, as well as the leaders of the Jerusalem church, they respected and trusted Barnabas a great deal to choose him to be the one to go to Antioch to see what was going on and to verify whether it was the work of God or not. And so verse 23, he went to Antioch and he witnessed the grace of God, it said. In other words, what he saw going on there in Antioch was obviously the work of God. God's grace was extending to these Gentiles who were responding to the gospel. And Barnabas rejoiced in the work of God and began to encourage them with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. That's what my translation says, with a resolute heart. Some translation says he exhorted them to remain true. Mine says encourage. Encourage them to remain true. <laughs> encourage. That's what Barnabas does best as he encourages. You've chosen to follow Jesus. Best choice you could ever make. Now, stay true to him. No matter what trials and difficulties come, don't ever waver in your faith. This is right and true. Stay firm in your faith. And moving on, it says considerable more members were, or numbers were brought to the Lord. So apparently at this point, Barnabas realized something. Something important. There's a whole whack of new Christians here at Antioch. Most of them are Gentiles. Whom have little to no knowledge or background information of the one true God. They do not have any benefit of the teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, some probably would have, but a lot of them would not have. Any background teaching of the Old Testament Scripture in the basics of a relationship with God and the basics of understanding who God is and, uh, and anything about God or the holiness of God or how to relate to God. The Jewish people, they would have had that background. And so they would have had a bit of an advantage over the Gentiles when they became Christians. Further, the Gentile people and probably the the Jewish people there in Antioch, they probably didn't have any real knowledge of the teachings of Jesus Christ either. Other than that he came to this earth as God the Son and God come in the flesh and that he died and rose again and paid the penalty for their sin and conquered sin and death by rising from the dead. They knew that, obviously. You have to know that to become Christians. But Barnabas realized that all these Christians here in Antioch, more than anything, they need some good, solid teaching. And his mind went to Saul. <laughs> from what we know of Saul, I'm not going to go through it again. You remember as we went through it. From what we know of Saul, no one knew the Old Testament scriptures better than Saul. And Saul had met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and had become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah the Old Testament foretold would be coming. God, uh, God had indicated back in chapter 9 that he intended... Saul to be an apostle for him to the Gentiles. Saul was a gifted teacher and expositor, had come to understand very clearly how the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus. Saul was the guy, Barnabas concluded, Saul was the guy to come to Antioch and teach these new believers and get them grounded in their new Christian faith. So Barnabas took off for Tarsus, where Saul was, the last we heard, to look for him. And he found Saul and brought him back to Antioch. And verse 26 tells us that for an entire year, for an entire year, they met with the believers in this church and he taught them. They, 
Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, sorry, Saul and, <laughs> and yeah, Barnabas, uh, taught the believers there. In fact, as Bonnie already pointed out, the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians there in Antioch. The literal meaning of the word is Christ ones, or Christ followers. That's where that name started there in Antioch. Moving on, verse 27 and following, about this time, after this year of the church being taught, some prophets came from Jerusalem. One of them, a man named Agabus, stood up among them and foretold by the Holy Spirit that there was a famine coming. And it would be all over the, the world. And I notice as Curtis read it, and his translation says all over the Roman world, or Roman Empire, I think it says, or something like that. And that's probably what it's talking about, the, the Roman Empire, the Roman world. Uh, there would be a famine coming over the whole, whole world, Roman world. All over the empire. And Luke points out then that this was very shortly fulfilled during the reign of Claudius, when Claudius was emperor. Claudius was already emperor when this was taking place. Claudius reigned from 40, 80, 41 to 54. 54, that's when Nero became emperor of Rome. And this famine, according to historians, happened in about AD 46. So this family prob famine probably hit within a few months of Agabus giving this prophecy. But these new Christians in Antioch responded to this news of a famine coming with a generous, generous hearts. And immediately they began raising money to help their fellow Christians in Judea. And that was interesting to me, but from what I could see, in times of famine, Judea was liable to suffer more severely because Judea is more of a semi-desert kind of area than further north where Antioch was. So in times of famine, those people down in Judea, they, they suffered worse than, than some other people. So these Christians in Antioch, these new Christians, they raised money, and then Barnabas and Saul left for Jerusalem, bringing the money with them. The money was given to the elders of the Jerusalem church for the help of the Christians in Judea during this time of famine. So that's the story of this passage that we're looking at today. And it teaches us some good things about making sure Christians are grounded in their faith and what it takes to make a grounded disciple. And what a grounded disciple looks like. So let's look at them. We need to understand what is needed to make a grounded disciple. And we can better understand this by looking at the important aspects of discipleship that are contained in this passage 11, 19 to 30. First important aspect, number one, the importance of encouragement to stay true. The importance of encouragement and encouragement to stay true. I looked at that and I thought that not said very well, but I didn't know how else to say it. <laughs> anyway, let's go through it. Barnabas, the encourager came to this quickly growing church of Gentile believers in this big city of Antioch, and he did what he did best. It says he encouraged them. And his encouragement was fairly specific. Verse 23, encourage them to stay true to the Lord. That is a vital part of the discipleship process. Especially for new believers who have little or no background or knowledge of the things of God. 
They've been told about Jesus. They believed in him. They've repented of their sin. They've placed their faith in him for salvation. And many times that's an exciting thing. They have this newfound joy in the Lord they've never had before. The weight of their sin has been lifted off their shoulders. And they have that joy of forgiveness. And a knowledge that they're at peace with God. That's a great and exciting thing for a new Christian. The temptation for these new believers is to think that this is what it will be like for the rest of their lives. Everything will be good from here on. And of course that's not true. As we all know. There are many trials and hard times and burdens in store for all Christians as they live their lives following Jesus. That's inevitable. As you live for Jesus, you'll be going against the current of the world around you. And that will make for trouble and hard times. So new believers need to be encouraged to remain true to the Lord. The temptation will be for them to give up when those hard times come. All the joy and excitement, all of a sudden, bang, things get tough and hard. And temptation will be there for them to become disillusioned. To start to think maybe Jesus isn't real after all. And there's no foundation for the Christian faith. So they need to be encouraged to remain true to the Lord. That these hard times will come. But that's part of growing in your faith. All Christians go through it. Barnabas saw that. And he knew that. And he used his gift of encouragement to encourage and exhort these new believers. It says with resolute heart in my translation. In other words, purpose in your heart to remain true to the Lord. That is the encouragement Barnabas gave to these new believers. Decide right now no matter what happens, that you will remain true. That's important, friends. For us as older Christians, when we interact with new Christians, let's be people who encourage them in our faith, in their faith. Encourage them to have a resolute heart when it comes to standing firm. Tell them that difficulties will inevitably come, but encourage them to stay true to Jesus, to keep the faith no matter what. It's more than worth it in the end. For that new Christian, they need that encouragement if they're going to become a grounded disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church that encourages new believers and fellow believers to remain true to the Lord no matter what second important aspect I see here is the importance of teaching. The importance of teaching. As we saw as we are going through this passage, Barnabas quickly realized that what these new believers, most of whom were Gentiles with little knowledge of God, what they needed most was teaching. They needed to be firmly grounded in their faith in Jesus Christ. And for that to happen, they needed to be taught. They needed to have a firm grasp of the one true God. A firm grasp of how he created everything. How sin entered into the world. And thus all were born of the sin nature. And thus all choose to sin. And that they understand exactly what sin is. And how our sin separates from God. And destines us for an eternity in hell. But how by the plan of God. Jesus, God the Son, became human like us. Lived a perfect life, life, died in our place, 
to pay the price for us and how he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death and now offers forgiveness and cleansing and a home in heaven for eternity as they place their faith in him. They need to have a firm grasp of that. Now, they will have understood this to some degree in order to repent and place their faith in Jesus, which they've already done, but they needed to be grounded in that and grow in their understanding of that and what that all means. They need to understand what it means to live a life that is in obedience to God and to what it means to die to sin and to leave the sinful ways of the world around us and live the kind of life Jesus wants us to live. They need to be taught all of that. They need to be taught about what this all means as they handle relationships and how they conduct their work and their business and on and on and on. They needed teaching. They needed to be taught all of this. Barnabas realized that and that's why he went and got Saul. Saul would be great at this. <laughs> so he did that and between the two of them they spent a year there at Antioch teaching these new believers. Friends, teaching is vital to discipleship. For a new Christian to become grounded in their faith, they need good, sound teaching. That is vitally important. Too many times we feel we've done our job when someone prays the prayer to accept Jesus. And then we kind of leave them be. <laughs> and that person never fully grasps, grasps what being a Christian is all about. So they go on living their lives just the same as they did before. No difference has been made. There's no change in their lives. Because that teaching isn't there. New believers need to be taught. And I, I trust we're a church that teaches the word of God thoroughly. We strive to do that and be that. We as a church, we kind of, quite deliberately, we resist the glitz and the glamour thing. We don't do that in our church. The smoke shows and the high octane performances that are highly superficial. Or the gimmicky programs that may entertain and draw some people in that we see happening in some churches, but may have little substance. Kind of resist that. We focus on teaching. Good, thorough teaching of God's word and how it applies to our lives and our communities in 2022. That's what we strive for because we see the vital importance of teaching as we see from this passage. You need that to have good, grounded disciples of Jesus Christ. So yeah, there will likely always be things to do on Sunday morning that are more fun or more entertaining than coming to church and listening to me. You can find more fun things to do. You can find more entertaining things to do. You'd probably find some things on some morning, Sunday mornings that you'd rather do. <laughs> but will doing those things give you the teaching in the word of God that is needed? And the encouragement to remain true to the Lord that is needed. Teaching is vitally important for the disciples any disciple to become grounded in the scriptures and grounded in their faith. Thirdly and finally, see the importance of a generous heart. 
And that's more of a mark of a grounded disciple than an aspect of making a disciple. But I didn't know how else to say it here. So <laughs> as you can tell, I struggled a few times with knowing how to say things. <laughs> as I've learned to my chagrin that many times I say things, and I think I'm explaining what I mean, but I find out later on that people got totally the wrong idea of what I said. <laughs> it's happened more than once. But the importance of a generous heart, a mark of a grounded believer. Verses 27 to 30. When it was revealed to these believers at Antioch, young believers though they were, after they had been taught for a year though, when they found out that a famine was coming, what was their response? They immediately started raising money to help out their fellow Christians down in Judea. They realized those believers would likely have it worse in the coming famine than they would, so they desired to help them out. And friends, that is a mark of a grounded disciple. A generous heart. A generous spirit. Jesus taught so much while he was on earth about sharing with those in need, about giving sacrificially to help out others. The apostles, as they continue on after Jesus ascended to heaven, very much right through the New Testament, all the writings of the New Testament, all the epistles, very much emphasized giving to the poor and the needy and helping out those in need. A generous heart is part of what a disciple is and does. These new believers would have been taught this principle in this past year. <laughs> and as they were taught, the Holy Spirit would have instilled that attitude and desire within them to be generous with those who are poor and in need and help them out. So when they became aware of a coming need, they immediately jumped to actions, generously gave to support those who would be in need. As I said, this is a mark of a good grounded disciple. They're generous. They're quick to help out when there is a need, and often sacrificially. If you see someone who claims to be a Christian and has financial means, but they are such tightwads that they would rather watch someone suffer than help them out, that person has a lot of learning to do about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Being a person with a generous heart is important. And I look at the people here this morning and I, I see a church full of generous people. That's what I see. You guys have do this all very well. But this is important. And that important comes out all the way through the Bible, beginning to end. It is something we should consider important. We as Christians need to be characterized by generosity. We as a church need to be characterized by generosity. So therefore we see from this passage the important aspects of making a grounded disciple. They are, number one, that encouragement to stay true to the Lord. Number two, any teaching. And number three, that generous heart. Some questions I'll ask as we close that you can wrestle with in the coming week. <laughs> First, where are you personally in the process of becoming a grounded disciple? Are you immersing yourself in the teaching of the word of God and in growing through that? Are you standing firm despite the hard times? Second, as we look at our church in general, are we as a body of believers... How are we doing in making grounded disciples? Do we give the encouragement and the teaching and the grounding that is necessary? 
So those are some self-evaluation things that uh, might be good to do some pondering on <laughs> this coming week. Let's take our time of silence and just open our hearts to what the Holy Spirit is saying to each one of us personally this morning. Our final two songs are ones that Cam picked, and they um, like aren't necessarily exactly what the points are, but they're really they're straight scripture, so they're good grounding kind of ones, and also ones that should define Christians. So let's stand and sing together.
steps I call to you, Lord, hear me from on high, and give attention to Surely wait for you, for your love. 